Chapter 5 of Superwomen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Superwomen by Albert Payson Terune. Chapter 5 Madame Jumel, New York's first official heartbreaker. Far to the north, on New York City's westerly side, on 160th Street near St. Nicholas Avenue, stands almost the sole American memorial to a superwoman. It takes the shape of a colonial dwelling, two and a half stories high, white, crowned by a railed gazebo, and with rear extensions and columns and the rest of the architectural fantasies wherein our New World ancestors rejoiced. It is called the Jumel Mansion, after Madame Jumel, although it originally belonged to Mary Morris, an earlier and more beautiful manslayer, at whose dainty feet George Washington, with solemn but futile protestations, deposited his heart, and although the woman whose name it bears ended her days there, not as Madame Jumel, but as Mrs. Burr. The house once stood far in the silent country, but the thin, throbbing island's life crawled northward inch by inch, until today the mansion crouches, miscast and bewildered, amid a forest of new and top-heavy flat houses, happy hunting ground for none-too-rich home-seekers, and is shaken by the jar of L and New York Central trains. Poor old house! Bewigged and small-clothed, great-grandther Peregrine from Pompton, caught in the screaming eddy of a subway rush-hour crowd at the Grand Central. So much for rhapsody. The Jumel place is worth it. For there ghosts walk. The stately, lavender-scented old villains and villainettes who made up New York's smart set a century and a quarter ago, when flats were called rookeries, and polite folk would scarce mention such things. In those days, when any theme was too darkly disreputable or indelicate for discussion, and a few things still were, in that anti-white slave era, people were prone to refer to such doubtful topics as shrouded in mystery, and to let it go at that. There was more than one event in the cradle-to-grave career of Madame Jumel that called for and received the kindly mystery shroud. As far as coherence will allow, let us leave the shroud snugly tucked around those events. I mention it at the outset only because more than one chronicler has used it to account for hiati, or is it hiatuses? The former sounds more cultured somehow, in the lady's career whereas nearly all, if not quite all, these gaps can be bridged quite easily by well-authenticated facts, some of them too well-authenticated for complete comfort, and so to the story. Aboard a ship bound north from the West Indies, one day in 1769 a woman died, a few hours after the birth of her baby daughter. It was not necessary to remove any wedding ring from the dead mother's finger before burying her at sea. One story says that her orphaned daughter's father had been a French sailor named Capet. Another, and wholly diverse tale, says that the baby was not born at sea at all, 
but in the Providence, Rhode Island poorhouse, and of unknown parentage. You see, the shroud of mystery was pressed into service very early in the biography. In any event, soon after the ship touched at Providence, a Rhode Island tradesman's wife was so attracted by the prettiness of the solitary girl baby as to adopt her. At the subsequent christening, the rather uninspiring name of Eliza Bowen was bestowed on the child. No one seems to know why. More mystery, and not a particularly thrilling one at that. In straight-laced ways, and to all demure modesty, Eliza was reared. And at fifteen, she was not only the prettiest girl in Rhode Island, but one of the cleverest, and, so declared the pious, one of the very worst. In those days, and in New England, it was delightfully easy to acquire a reputation for wickedness by merely failing to conform to all the ideas of the blue law devotees. Shan't we give Betty Bowen, her commonly used name, the benefit of the doubt? We know she was not only blessed with unwanted beauty, but with an exceptional mind. She had, in full measure, even in girlhood, the nameless and irresistible charm of the superwoman. She was reckless, high of spirit, impatient of restraint, inclined to listen over kindly, perhaps to the pleadings of her countless rural admirers. Then, when she was only seventeen, Colonel Peter Croy came into her life. Croy was a former officer in the British Army and lived in New York. He had plenty of money, and was more or less what, a century later, would have been called a rounder. How this middle-aged Lothario chanced to meet the Rhode Island Belle, no one knows. But meet her he did. He was the first man of the world who had come into Betty's rustic life. By contrast with the local swains, he was irresistible, or so she found him. At all events, she did not resist. She eloped with him, and Rhode Island knew her no more. Her real career as a heartbreaker had set in. To New York, Colonel Croy brought his inamorata. There, he installed her in a stately country house at 34th Street and 5th Avenue, on the spot where afterward A.T. Stewart's white marble domicile used to excite the out-of-towner's awe, and where now a trust company's building stands. Betty wore amazingly costly clothes, paying for a single dress far more than for her year's wardrobe in Rhode Island. Croy festooned jewelry, Christmas tree-like, over her neck, hair, and hands. She blossomed like the rose. Croy, inordinately proud of his conquest, also brought shoals of his friends to call, which was a mistake, for Betty had no leanings, toward monopolies. Like the hackneyed but ever-useful meteor, Betty flashed upon stark young 18th-century New York. The city, so far as its male population was concerned, threw up both hands in blissful surrender. Croy's friends, some of them rounders like himself, some of them fat, solid but beauty-loving financiers, formed a court of beauty around the fair newcomer, Betty's consummate charm drew to this court other and loftier men, too. For example, one of her foremost adorers, 
was a brilliant magnetic young statesman whose birth was perhaps as unblessed as her own but whose self-made name was already beginning to ring through america he was alexander hamilton he had a high-born and attractive wife of his own and an adoring nestful of children but hamilton believed in monopolies no more than did betty and he became her adorer another of the higher type of men who came a-courting betty was a statesman of almost equal fame a little fellow scarce five feet four inches tall and slight of build whose strikingly handsome face was lighted by enormous black eyes almost snake-like in their mesmeric power particularly over women he was aaron burr burr was a lady killer of the first order he was not a man of bad morals he was simply a man of no morals at all but he was also a man of no fear and a genius withal he knelt not in submission but in ironic admiration before betty and she like fifty other women was swayed by his hypnotic eyes and his wondrous love eloquence at the house of which croy had made betty the chatelaine burr and hamilton often met but never at the wish of either for they hated every bone in each other's bodies they had been at loggerheads as mere lads when together they had served on general washington's staff during the revolutionary war afterward in social and political life they had clashed and clashed fiercely now as rivals for the interest of the volatile betty their smouldering hate flamed forth lurid and deathless and thenceforth fanned by new political and other causes that death-hate grew it came to a head seven years later when in the gray of a chilly morning the lifelong rivals faced each other pistol in hand in the fields beyond weehawken heights and when at the first volley hamilton sprang high in the air then crashed to the earth mortally wounded yes in her time betty had directly or indirectly much to answer for george washington bowen in after years swore that he was the son of betty and of the father of his country this the jumelles have fiercely denied among the businessmen guests croy brought to see betty was an enormously rich old french wine merchant stephen jumel by name this was in eighteen o four the year of hamilton's death jumel was fifty betty was thirty-five jumel was passing rich betty had shrewdness enough to realize that her own fortunes under her present circumstances depended solely on her looks and her charm as beauty is not eternal and as charm sometimes fails to outlive it the superwoman deemed it wise to accept the infatuated wine merchant's offer of marriage indeed she is said to have angled with napoleonic strategy for that same offer and to have won it only after a sharp struggle of wits jumel was no fit opponent for her then or ever after from the first they appear to have had but a single will between them and that was hers on april seventeenth eighteen o four 
Betty and Jamel were married in St. Peter's Church in Barclay Street. The wedding's record still stands in the parish archives. So does the statement made on that occasion by Betty, a statement charmingly at variance with all other records of her origin. For in the church register, she wrote that she was born in 1777 and was the daughter of Phoebe and John Bowen, the latter a drowned sea captain. New York, having a somewhat tenacious memory, eyed the bride askance, or so she fancied, and, like many a later American, she sought to cover any possible reputation scars by a European veneer. She persuaded her husband to sell out some of his New York interest and to take her to Paris to live, which, ever obedient, he did. Napoleon I was at the heyday of his glory. About him was a court circle that did not look over closely into people's antecedents. Napoleon's brother-in-law, Murat, had started life as a tavern waiter. Napoleon himself was the son of a poor Corsican lawyer, and had never been able to learn to speak French without a barbarous accent. As for his sister Pauline, if a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, Pauline's spouse, Prince Borghese, had not a ghost of a chance of skipping into the king row. Nor was Napoleon's first wife, Josephine, of flawless repute. Altogether, it was a coterie unlikely to ask many questions about Betty's early history. The fascinations of Madame Jumel and the vast wealth of Monsieur Jumel were not to be withstood. Speedily, the husband and wife were in the turgid center of things, part and parcel of imperial court life. As Betty had charmed level-headed New York, there is no need to describe in windy detail what she did to Paris. Her conquests there, like the stars of the Milky Way, shine indistinct and blurred because of their sheer numbers. But through the silvery blur gleams forth the name of Lafayette. The old Marquis was delighted at sight with the lovely young American, and he eagerly offered to act as her sponsor at court, which he did to the amusement of many and to the indefinite advancement of Betty's social hopes. The great Napoleon glanced in no slightest disfavor on Lafayette's social protégé. He willingly set the seal of imperial approval on the court's verdict. The emperor was Stephen Jumel's idol. Himself, a self-made man, the old merchant worshipped this self-made demigod, the model and unattainable example of every self-making man since his day. Jumel's hero-worship took a practical form. He placed his resources at the emperor's service, and, once tactlessly but generously offered his own wealth and his New York home as solace and refuge in the increasingly probable event of the emperor's mislaying his crown, to which Napoleon replied, speaking as ever to the gallery, Whatever reverses fortune may inflict on me, duty will chain me to France. It would be unworthy my greatness and an insult to my empire for me to seek asylum across the seas. Yet, when the inevitable day dawned, the fugitive emperor made plans to do that very thing, and Jumel met him more than halfway by crossing from New York to Havre on his own yacht, the Elizabeth, named for his wife, 
and seeking to bear away his fallen idol to safety. The plan, of course, fell through, and Napoleon, in consequence, was almost the only Bonaparte who did not sooner or later come to New York. Imperial friendship and a gloriously extravagant and extravagantly glorious wife are things to brag of. They are splendid advertisements, but they are not on the free list. In fact, they rip hideous breaches in the solidest wall of wealth. They played havoc with Papa Jumel's supposedly boundless fortune. One morning in Paris, the Jumels awoke to find themselves nastily close to bankruptcy. The French court was emphatically no fitting place wherein to go bankrupt. The scared Jumels realized this. Back they scurried to New York. In that born of fast-made and faster-lost fortunes to face what the future might bring. And now, all praise to Betty Jumel, erstwhile queen of money-wasters. Instead of repining, or blaming her husband for letting her break him, or flitting to some wooer whose wealth was still intact, she did the very last thing her past would have led anyone to expect. She became, in effect, her husband's business partner. She displayed a genius for finance. It must have been stark genius, for her personal experience in the credit side of the money ledger was nil. More through his wife's aid than through his own sound business acumen, Papa Jumel began to win back the ground Betty had so industriously helped him to lose. One daring and lucky venture followed another. In an incredibly short time, the Jumels were again numbered among the very richest people in America. Once more, Betty launched on a career of luxury, but now and ever after, she kept just within her abundant resources. Bankruptcy was a peril forever banished. Betty, you see, did not belong to the type of fool who runs his head twice into the same hornet's nest. There really was no need for such monotony. There were plenty of hornet's nests. The first expenditure to celebrate the new fortune was the buying of the big white house far away on the hillock above the Harlem River, a long, long coach drive up the Broadway from the city's fashionable residence district to the south of Duane Street. Remember, this was a full twenty years before the southern merchant made his historic speech, when I come to New York on business, I never think of stopping at the Astor House, it's much too far uptown for a busy man. The house Betty made her husband buy had been built years earlier by Colonel Roger Morris, after he married Mary Phillips, the colonial belle, whose father owned most of Westchester County and lived in a manor house there among his vassals like a feudal lord. To this abode moved the Jumels. Thither they brought a retinue of servants whose numbers amazed the thrifty New Yorkers. Here, too, were deposited such furniture as New York had seldom seen. A marvelously hideous marble-top table given to Papa Jumel by the Sultan of Turkey. A set of chairs that had been Napoleon's. A truly gaudy and cumbrous gold clock, which had been one of the Emperor's gifts to Betty tapestry and pictures that had once belonged to the Empress Josephine, 
dining-room furniture that had graced the salle à manger of king charles x of france a massive glittering chandelier the gift of general moreau who had vied with the emperor for betty's smiles above all these and the rest of her home's rich furnishings betty treasured two other gifts from napoleon odd gage d'amour for such a man to have given such a woman they were the battered army chest and army cot used by him throughout the wonderful italian campaign that had first established his fame the world was scoured by jumel's merchant ships to secure rare plants and trees for the hundred and fifty acre park surrounding the mansion cedars from mount lebanon cypresses from greece exotic flowers from south america roses from provence these were but a few of the innumerable exotics that filled the grounds the park to-day is a wilderness of dingy apartment-lined streets once established in their new home the jumels began to entertain on a scale that dwarfed even the much vaunted hospitality of the antebellum south and the people who of yore had looked obliquely and frostily on betty bowen now clamoured and schemed and besought for invitations to her dinners well they might for not only america's great folk delighted to honour the mansion by their presence but every titled foreigner who touched our shores became a guest there hither came joseph bonaparte kicked off the ready-made throne to which his emperor brother had vainly sought to fit the incompetent meagre form and more meagre intellect and here he was entertained with royal honour as if he had been still a sovereign instead of merely a crownless puppet no longer upheld by the mightiest of human hands here he was your majesty and people backed out of the room in which he chanced to be stood until he gave them gracious leave to sit and otherwise showered upon him the adoring servility that the freeborn are prone to lavish upon the representatives of monarchy bonaparte after bonaparte visited the jumels the name bonaparte was still one wherewith to conjure and that fact by itself made its thick-headed and impecunious bearers welcome in almost every land they might choose to visit they graciously accepted the jumel house's hospitality and the veneration of their fellow-guests still more graciously they borrowed money which they never returned of papa jumel and most graciously of all they made ardent and heavy love to betty to the jumel mansion came finally the last and least esteemed of the bonaparte visitor a squat puffy-eyed princeling pallid crafty shadow of the austerlitz man who had left france and jail one jump ahead of the police had served as special constable in london to pick up enough money for food and now for similar reason was teaching school in bordentown new jersey he was louis napoleon alleged nephew of napoleon i i say alleged on the authority of victor hugo's famous sneer that louis was neither the nephew of his uncle the son of his father nor the father of his son it was hugo too who when louis became emperor of the french under the title of napoleon the third dubbed him napoleon the little 
for which witticism Monsieur Hugo was promptly banished from France. Louis was the son of Napoleon's younger brother of the same name and of his wife and stepniece Hortense Beauharnais. The son had not a single Bonapartist feature nor trait. He strongly resembled, however, a certain dashing Dutch admiral, one Flauhout, on whom Hortense had been credited with bestowing a more than neighborly interest. It is not libelous, in view of many proven facts, indeed it is scarce gossip, to say that Hortense, like her mother the Empress Josephine, had had the foible of loving not wisely, but too often. In any event, whoever may have been his father, Louis Napoleon was kindly received by the Jumels, not as a prince, but as a guest of honor. And Papa Jumel lent him much hard-earned American money. Among all the Bonapartes, Louis was the least promising of the Jumel's beneficiaries, and of them all, he alone was to make any return for their goodness to him. The Prince de Joinville, here to investigate and, if necessary, buy off Eliezer Williams' claim to be the lost Dauphin, stayed at the mansion and paid charming attentions to Betty. So did the polished old scoundrel Talleyrand, whom Napoleon had daintily described as a silk stocking filled with muck. Less lofty of birth, but worth all the Bonapartes put together in point of genius, was a young American poet who vastly admired Betty, and who, on her invitation, spent weeks at a time at the mansion. He was Fitzgreen Halleck, and, seated on the porch of the Jumel house, he wrote a poem that a million schoolboys were soon to spout, Marco Bozzaris. One morning in 1830, Papa Jumel set out for New York on a business call to his bankers. He rode forth from the long winding driveway, several flat houses and stores and streets cut across that driveway's course today, in the lumbering and costly family coach. An hour later he was brought home dying. The coach had upset on the frost-rutted road a few miles to the south. Jumel had fallen out on his head. Papa Jumel was in the late seventies at the time of his death. His widow was either fifty-three or sixty-one, all depending on whether you believe her own statement or the homely Rhode Island facts. What does it matter? She was one of the superwomen who do not grow old. Scarce was her worthy spouse stretched comfortably in his last sleep when suitors thronged the house. And it was not alone because the widow Jumel was one of the richest women in America. She still held her ancient sway over men's hearts, still made sentimental mush of men's brains. Gossip, silenced of late years, sprang eagerly and happily to life. Once more did New York ring with Betty's daring flirtations. But she cared little for people's talk. She was rich enough, famous enough, clever enough, still beautiful enough to be a law unto herself. The very folk who gossiped so scandalously about her were most eager to catch her eye in public or to secure an invitation to the great mansion on the Harlem. As to men, she had never yet in all her fifty-three, or was it sixty-one, years met her match at heart-smashing. But she was to meet him, 
and soon will you let me go back for a space and sketch in a mere mouthful of words the haps and mishaps of one of betty's earlier admirers aaron burr was vice-president of the united states when he shot hamilton the bullet that killed hamilton rebounded and killed burr's political future for hamilton was a national favorite and burr was not burr served out his term as vice-president amid a whirlwind of national hatred then he went west a bitterly disappointed and vengeful man and embarked on an incredibly audacious scheme whereby he was to wrench free the great west and southwest from the rest of the union and install himself as emperor of that vast region under the title of aaron i the scheme failed and burr was hauled before the bar of justice on charges of high treason through some lucky fate or other he was acquitted but he was secretly advised to leave america he followed the advice and when he wanted to come back to the united states he found every port closed against him so he starved for a time in obscure european lodging his heart had been broken years earlier by the death of the only woman he ever truly loved she was not one of the hundreds who made fools of themselves over him she was not his wife who had died so long before she was his only daughter theodosia the only holy influence in his tempestuous life and theodosia had been lost at sea no authentic word of her or of the ship that carried her has ever been received burr had spent every day for months pacing the battery sea-wall straining those uncanny black eyes of his for glimpses of her ship he had spent every dollar he could lay hands on in sending for news of her and then he had given up hope this had been long before his daughter dead his political hopes blasted his country's gates barred against him he dragged out a miserable life in europe then after years of absence he slipped into the united states in disguise the first news of his return came in a new york newspaper announcement that colonel aaron burr has opened law offices on the second floor of twenty three nassau street the government made no move to deport him clients by the dozen flocked to take advantage of his brilliant legal intellect poverty in a breath gave place to prosperity this was in the spring of eighteen thirty three a scant three years after papa jumel's sudden demise tidings came to betty that her old adorer after so long a lapse of time was back in new york and across the gap of years came memories of his mesmeric eyes his wonderful voice the eyes and voice no woman could resist the inspired manner of his love-making and betty went to him throughout his love-starred life it was burr's solemn declaration that never once did he take a single step out of his path to win any woman that all his myriad conquests came to him unsought probably this was true there are worse ways of bagging any form of game than by still hunting perhaps there are few better at all events down broadway in her france-built coach rolled betty jumel tall blonde statuesque as in the betty bowen days when peter croy had 
bought a book for his friends to read she called on burr ostensibly to consult him about a legal matter involving a real estate deal but burr understood burr always understood he saw too that betty was still fair to look upon and that she had lost little of her charm by common report he knew she was egregiously rich he himself was wizened white of hair and seventy-eight years old poverty griefs bitter disappointments had sadly broken him save for his eyes and voice and brain there was little about him to remind betty of the all-conquering and dapper little lothario of forty years back yet as he listened and looked she loved him yes there is a goodly assortment of hornets nests wherein a fool may run his head without visiting the same nest twice a few days after her call at his office betty gave one of her renowned dinner parties it was in honor of colonel burr the guest of honor carried all before him that evening the people who had come to stare at him as an escaped arch-criminal went home wholly enslaved by his magnetic charm aaron burr had come to his own again in saying good-night to his hostess burr lingered after the other guests had trundled off cityward in their carriages then taking his leave with bared head there in the moonlight on the steps of the jumel mansion he dropped lightly to one knee and raised betty's hand to his lips madam he breathed the merciful moonlight making him for the moment his young and irresistible self again madam i give you my hand my heart has long been yours it was a pretty old-world speech betty thought or affected to think it meant nothing but it was the opening gun of a swift campaign day after day thereafter burr neglected his fast-growing law business to drive out to the house above the river every day he drew the siege lines closer to the citadel at length he asked betty to marry him with a final glimmer of common sense she refused he went away betty feared he would not come back but he did he came back the very next day july one eighteen thirty three and with him in the carriage was another old man the reverend dr bogart who had performed the marriage ceremony for burr and the latter's first wife to the butler who admitted them burr gave a curt message for madame jumel asking that she come down to them at once in the drawing-room wondering she obeyed madam said burr by way of salutation i have come here to-day to marry you pray get ready at once betty indignantly refused and all but ordered her suitor and the clergyman from the house then burr began to talk the consummate eloquence that had swayed prejudiced juries to his will the love pleas that no woman had been able to hear unmoved the matchless skill at argument that had made him master of men and women alike all were brought into play an aged discredited half impoverished failure was asking a beautiful and enormously rich woman to be his wife those were the cold facts but cold facts had a way of vanishing before aaron burr's personality 
perhaps the greatest lingual triumph of his seventy-eight years was one when this feeble old man broke down within half an hour all betty's defences of coquetry and of sanity as well at last she ran from the room murmuring that she would decide and let him know burr sank back wearily in his chair the victory was won he knew it a little later betty reappeared at the head of the stairs she was resplendent in a gown of thick stiff dove-colored satin and she glittered with a thousand jewels burr lightly as a boy ran up the stairs to meet her without a word she took his proffered arm together they walked to where the clergyman stationed by burr awaited them and they were married superwoman and superman i know of no other instance in the history of love where two such consummate heartbreakers became man and wife it would be pleasant to record that the magnetic old couple walked hand in hand into the sunset that their last years were spent together in the light of the afterglow here was a husband after betty's own heart here was a wife to excite the envy of all burr's friends to rehabilitate him socially and financially it seemed an ideal union but the new wed pair did none of the things that any optimist would predict that any astute student of human nature would set down in a novel about them before the honeymoon was over they were quarrelling like cat and dog about money of course burr sold some stock for his wife and neglected to turn over the proceeds to her she asked for the money he curtly replied madam this time you are married to a man a man who will henceforth take charge of all your business affairs betty's temper had never at best threatened to rob the patient griselda of her laurels men had been her slaves not her masters she had no fancy for changing the lifelong conditions so in a blaze of anger she not only demanded her money but hinted very strongly that colonel burr was little better than a common fortune hunter burr ordered her to go to her room and stay there until she could remember the respect due from a wife to her husband she made a hot retort to the effect that the house was hers and that but for her wealth burr was a mere outcast and beggar burr without a word turned and left the house this was just ten days after the wedding he went to new york and took up his abode in his former duane street lodgings betty scared and penitent went after him there was a reconciliation and he came back but soon there was another squabble about money and betty in another tantrum went to a lawyer and brought suit to take the control of her fortune out of her husband's hands again burr left his new home vowing he would never return the poor old fellow once more cast upon his own resources and self-deprived of the luxuries his wife's money had brought him fell ill when betty in another contrite fit went to plead with him to come back she found him delirious she had him carried out to the mansion and for weeks nursed him right tenderly but when he came again to his senses burr would not speak to his wife 
the moment he was able to get out of bed he left the house betty never saw him again not very long afterward he died in a staten island hotel alone unmourned he who had been the darling of women did betty mourn her husband emeritus not noticeably she was not of the type that mourns before burr was fairly under the sod she was flirting gaily and was demanding and receiving the same admiration that had always been hers she sought to make people forget that she had ever been mrs burr and she asked them to call her once more madame jumel she dazzled new york with a mammoth flower fete in the summer of eighteen thirty seven and once more heedless of people's opinions ruled as queen of new york's little social realm and so the years sped on until the superwoman of other days could no longer fight off that incurable disease old age american men no longer vied for her favors she decided that american men's taste for beauty had been swallowed up by commercialism and she went again to paris where she remembered men had never ceased to sue for her love this was in eighteen fifty three louis napoleon had just made himself napoleon the third emperor of the french he had a way in the days of his power of forgetting those who had befriended him when he was down at the heel exile and of snubbing former friends who were so foolish as to claim present notice on the ground of past favors but he made a notable exception in the case of madame jumel he received her with open arms gave a court ball in honor of her return to paris and in every way treated her almost as if she had been a visiting sovereign one likes to think his overworked recording angel put all this down in large letters on the credit side of napoleon the little's celestial ledger page heaven knows there was plenty of blank space on that side of the page for any such entries but on betty herself the effect of all this adoration was decidedly startling treated like a queen she grew to believe she was a queen the razor-keen wits that had stood by her so gallantly for three-quarters of a century or more were dulling her mind began wandering helplessly in the realms of fancy an odd phase of her mental decay was that she took to babbling incessantly of aaron burr whose name she had not spoken in years and she seemed to forget that she had ever met a man named jumel she came back to the old house on the hill overlooking the harlem the stream was no longer as pastoral and deserted as in earlier days and houses and cottages had begun to spring up all around the confines of the mansion's grounds new york was slowly creeping northward but it is to be doubted that betty realized the change she was a queen no less a queen because she ruled an imaginary kingdom she declared that her position as a sovereign demanded a body of household troops so she hired a bodyguard of twenty soldiers dressed them in gay uniforms and placed them on duty around the house she increased her staff of servants to an amazing degree she assumed regal airs every visitor was announced as if entering the presence of royalty 
Betty no longer received callers. Instead, she held audiences. Yearly, she journeyed in state to Saratoga, with a retinue of fifty servants and officers of the household. Money went like water in the upkeep of the queenly establishment. The once boundless Jumel wealth that she had helped to amass began to shrink under the strain. Yet so great was that fortune that more than a million dollars of it was left after she died. New York was kind. Men who had loved Betty, women who had been envied because of her friendship for them, rallied about her now in her dotage and helped her keep up the pitiable farce of queenship. And in the mansion on the hill, on July 16, 1865, she fell asleep. A score of New York's foremost men were her honorary pallbearers, and all society made for the last time the long journey to Harlem to honor her memory. So died Betty Bowen, Betty Jumel, Betty Burr, whatever you prefer to call her. She was New York's first and greatest official heartbreaker. She was doubly fortunate, too, in missing the average old superwoman's realization of having outgrown her wonder charm. For when her life-book of beauty and power and magnetism closed, delusion tenderly took up the tale, and, through a fairyland of imagined admiration and regal rank, Betty tottered happily to the very end. End of chapter 5 Recording by Linda Johnson